You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner given in 1920 entitled, What is Necessary in These Urgent Times? This is Lecture 1, entitled, The Science of Initiation and the Realities of Life, given in Dornach on January 9, 1920. The ways in which the science of initiation has intervened, necessarily intervened, in all that was and is to be known and undertaken in earthly life, can be effectively, in quotes, read in the course of human evolution in history. This is what should be taken from the remarks I made before my departure last December, and also from the, shall we say, underlying text of the public lectures. I have recently given, excuse me, of the public lectures I have recently given, If you are unable to feel the truth of this statement with the whole of your being, then you are asleep and unaware of the actual demands of the present moment. For all intents and purposes, however, most people are asleep to the demands of the present. Since we must be very clear on this point, the questions currently put to humanity cannot be answered except out of knowledge that comes from initiation science. As a result, it is important not only that initiation science was always present in the history of human evolution, that there were always initiates who understood the powers that actually lay behind worldly occurrences and existence. What matters is that there are still such initiates living today. But only a very few people are able to have a clear mental picture of these initiates' relationship to the world. And actually, people now have no desire for this kind of understanding. Instead, they balk when they hear about the necessity of incorporating initiation science into our contemporary consciousness. Furthermore, we can come to understand the critical nature of this moment in time only when we observe how these initiates are involved differently in various regions of the civilized world. Their relationship to affairs in the East is very different from their relationship to affairs in the West, and those who believe they can get by with absolute statements and judgments applicable to all people and places do not live in reality. They live rather in a world of abstractions. Instead of dealing in absolutes, we must continually examine world occurrences from many different angles and points of view, so that the critical nature of this moment will at the very least be impressed upon the consciousness of a few. Turning first to what is happening in the West, particularly in the English-speaking world, we find that contemporary public opinion and all that it produces in the world is not dependent simply on what today I will speak quite firmly, if I may, the uninitiated dream up and tout, read that again, 
Turning first to what is happening in the West, particularly in the English-speaking world, we find that contemporary public opinion and all that it produces in the world is not dependent simply on what, today I will speak quite firmly if I may, on what the uninitiated dream up and tout as their ideals. Indeed, in the English-speaking world, there is currently a violent opposition between what the public considers true and what those who are truly initiated consider true behind the scenes. If we examine the general consciousness in this region of the civilized world, particularly if we examine the best of what results from it, we find a humanitarian ideal present there. There is a drive to centralize human affairs under the purview of humanitarianism and establish institutions that will serve it well. Today we shall not examine the dark corners of this region or all that is hiding there. We shall instead turn our gaze toward the best parts of public life originating to the in the uninitiated. This is the ambitious pursuit to unite people under the banner of humanitarianism. Behind this outward striving stands the knowledge of the initiated, leading society onward. <clears throat> and without the public knowing it, without the public even having the opportunity to know it, the directing forces for these efforts flow out of the circle of certain initiated individuals into public opinion and earthly deeds. Now and then it is possible for a society to better itself with beautiful programs and beautiful ideals. Otherwise no one would bother to be idealistic in the first place. But living among those idealistic people, unbeknown to them, are more than the things they speak about. There are certain ways, certain paths, by which their affairs can be penetrated by what flows out of the circles of initiates. And so it happened in the last third of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. We shall consider only this time period and not look farther into the past. That well-intentioned people, who were, however, uninitiated, dreamt of all possible manner of beautiful ideals and united to bring their beautiful ideals to fruition in society. Behind their efforts, behind what was happening at that time, stood initiates who in the 1880s, as I said we shall not look farther back than that, were speaking about an impending world war that would change the face of southern and eastern Europe. If you are able to follow what was spoken and taught within those circles of initiates, you will know that they foretold the terrible, horrendous things that have come crashing over the civilized world in the past five years. These things were by no means a secret to the initiates of the English-speaking world. In all of their discussions about the subject, there is a single difference of opinion. On one side are those who support beautiful, exoteric ideals, the ideals of humanitarianism, for example, and all the ways in which the uninitiated have brought it into the world. On the other side are those who very strongly defend the calculated theory that Central European culture must vanish from modern civilization, 
and that the culture of the English-speaking people must rise to prominence and achieve world domination. When these things are spoken now, they have much more weight than they might have had if spoken twenty years ago. Twenty years ago it was possible to brush aside anyone who said such a thing. He is just whistling Dixie, but now we can easily see that much of what those initiates foretold has come to pass. I say this as cautiously as I am able, so as not to deviate from describing what is purely factual. But even describing the purely factual, even this is extremely discomforting to the majority of people living today. They want to cast it aside. They refuse to go anywhere near it. There is so much we can do these days to fuel the fires in our souls. We can do work cultivating nationalism or re-establishing former national institutions. We can advocate for the League of Nations. The list goes on and on. People do not want to hear that in fact humanity is presently in the midst of a terrible crisis. Thus far, we have given a brief indication of the difference between what uninitiated people in the West know and what actually drives and guides the decisions and resolutions without their knowing it. We can come to know our part in what happens in the world only if we work to familiarize ourselves with what truly exists. We must discover what the world holds when we do not allow ourselves to be pushed and prodded into actions, but rather attempt to find the paths that enable true freedom of will. If we turn now to consider the East, we find the same division between uninitiated and initiated people. What sorts of things could you expect an uninitiated person there to say? An uninitiated person in the East sounds a bit like Rabindranath Tagore. Rabindranath Tagore is a wonderful Eastern idealist who has taken a stand for unusually radical ideals. Everything that he has published or otherwise expressed publicly is quite beautiful. But Tagore's words are the words of an uninitiated person. Eastern initiates speak in a very different way, according to the old customs of the East. They do not speak at all. They have other ways of realizing their wishes in society. First among these is the wish to prevent any one side from striving for world domination. Because they know quite clearly, or believe they know quite clearly, that if any group were to rise to world dominance, it would be the English-American people. They do not want this to happen. To prevent it, they actually want to do away with civilization on earth entirely. Being extremely familiar with the spiritual world, they are convinced that human beings would progress more satisfactorily if they were to forego their future earthly incarnations. These initiates of the East are not concerned with what will come of Leninism, they say, if this institution of Leninism continues to spread, there is no more certain way of ruining life on earth as we know it. But this would be a favorable occurrence only for those people who through the work they have done in previous incarnations are already able to live on without the possibility of incarnating again on earth. If you were to say this to a European, 
it would be considered paradoxical. But these Eastern initiates speak with one another about these matters in the same way that an ignorant European would speak about the difference in taste between pea soup and rice soup. For these initiates, such matters have true reality. They do not lie outside the range of such everyday discussions. If we examine the conditions of the contemporary civilized world and wish to understand them, then we may not disregard the fact that these two influences from East and West are present in reality. And we absolutely cannot work to aid human progress without a complete feeling for the influence that these things have in the course of human evolution. Outward social life as we know it, is it molded by what people think superficially? by the beliefs of those who allow themselves to be ruled by the science of the uninitiated? If you wish to study this question, I recommend that you pick eight days in May or June of 1914 and read newspaper articles or books published during those eight days, then ask yourself how many were written by people actually present to reality. (laughs) In other words, how many people in the civilized world do you find who had any knowledge of the buds that were to flower in August in that civilized world? The uninitiated did not allow themselves to even dream of such things. Even today the uninitiated will not allow themselves to dream about what is currently happening. But what happens in outward life does not result from the knowledge of uninitiated people. A large gap separates what people believe and what really happens in life. We should bring this gap to the forefront of our consciousness. The correct answer to my earlier question is another question. How much do the uninitiated actually know today about life and what holds sway over it? People talk with one another about life. People come up with theories and ideals and programs, but without having any real familiarity with life. And when something does appear that is truly a product of life, then humanity does not recognize it as such. They regard it, too, as a theory or an absurdity or something of the like. The influences of the West and the East have very different meanings for life. These separate meanings play their respective parts in a way that is glaringly obvious to those who can observe such things. If the theories, programs, and social outlook of the West were to become dominant, then nothing, really nothing, would come of them, absolutely nothing. That there is even such a thing as a Western civilization, that people living in the West are able to develop institutions and programs This is not due to the fact that individuals like Spencer or Darwin or other more socially minded people live here and contribute their ideas, for in reality nothing can be made of these exoteric theories and worldviews. That life still progresses, that it does not merely stagnate, is due solely to the fact that old traditional instincts are still alive in the English-speaking world, and that life is actually aligned with these older instincts and not with the new theories. 
The theories are just decorations that people put on when they want to speak in flowery language about life. What really governs and directs life are the instincts that float to the surface from the unconscious depths of soul. This is something that must be seriously observed and recognized. We will turn now to the East. What I am referring to as the East begins when one crosses the Rhine River, and the farther East one travels, the more life resembles life in the East. Let us examine what we find there. First of all, we should consider the history in Germany, Russia, and even the Middle East. When we examine Germany from a historical perspective, we find something very strange indeed. We find that though such great spirits as Goethe, Fichte, Schelling, Hegel, and Herder lived among the German people, in actuality the German people have not the slightest idea that such great spirits lived among them. In Germany, members of a small spiritual aristocracy were the sole bearers of civilization. Never did this civilization find a foothold in the general public. Even Goethe was not known in most German circles until after 1862. I say after 1862 because in Germany it was very difficult to obtain a copy of Goethe's works before that time. His works were not yet free for open publication, and the Cotter family saw to it that they were very hard to come by. Since 1862, Goethe's works have been available for open publication and they have certainly been read, but they have never quite penetrated into the intellectual life of the German nation. For this reason alone, we can already observe in the German people the first hint of an extreme uncertainty of instinct, for over and against the focused life force, the intense spiritual power that streams outward from people like Herder or Goethe or Fichte is an extreme uncertainty of human instinct, an uncertainty caused by the fact that in this region of the world human instincts moved away from older traditions. As time passed in the West, human instincts continued to exist according to older traditions. Here in Germany they not only moved away from tradition, but they also failed to undergo any sort of true renewal. They were not penetrated with what the spiritual world could have offered to them. This can be even more clearly discerned in Eastern Europe. Just think about the role that so-called orthodox religion has played there. Think about the mark it has left on institutions. How it has lived an earthly life but done nothing, absolutely nothing, for the soul life. The preservation of this Eastern Orthodoxy, which has long outlived its relevance, signifies that the human souls living in the East have also encountered this same uncertainty in their lives. Anyone living in Western Europe who has come to know a Russian will be moved by the idiosyncratic relationship that this person has to what is universally human on the one hand and to Orthodox religion on the other. For someone who cannot begin to imagine the desperation with which the Russian people have turned to orthodox religion, a Russian individual will seem to be a soul from centuries long ago, 
still clinging to the keepsakes and accessories of an outdated religion and believing that they might still hold some meaning. This is what characterizes the Russian soul, and consequently this uncertainty of human instinct, this lack of inner unity, flows out into Eastern Europe. The idiosyncratic division that has permeated the Russian people is connected ultimately with this uncertainty of human instinct. Sometime soon, in the next few decades perhaps, the whole population of Asia could very well fall prey to European conquerors, because the initiates living in Asia are not doing anything to stop it. After all, if Asia does fall prey to European conquerors, it will only make the members of that society all the more ready to extricate themselves from earthly life and forego their future earth incarnations. We stand in the midst of these two forces, and there are also forces that do not side with one group or the other, but that are working instead toward a true renewal of initiation science. These forces must be called forth, must be delivered into the world from out of the human soul. These days it only makes sense to speak about life if we allow our words to be filled with the conscious awareness of this fact. We must assume that this is the task that lies before us. To accomplish this task, it must also be continuously shown how individuals living nowadays must work to navigate between extreme intellectualism on the one hand and extreme emotionalism on the other. Our lives always fluctuate between a tendency toward an ever-escalating, self-defeating intellectualism and a tendency toward an emotionalism that seeks the meaning of life by diving deep into our animalistic drives. Intellectualism has evolved out of our existing spiritual life, which changed due to things that have risen to prominence since the 15th century. But this spiritual life is merely a shadow now. This spiritual life is thin. This spiritual life is nothing but rhetoric. And precisely because this spiritual life is thin and shadowy, the powers at work within it are not directed toward what is truly spiritual. Rather, they direct themselves toward the human being's instincts, its drives, its animalistic side. Lacking the strength to give the proper impulses to these drives and thereby spiritualize them, human beings and their shadowy intellectual ideas are in every moment divided in their relationship to the soul. <laughs> Imagine for a moment that you are making judgments about your fellow human beings. In that moment you are intellectualizing. Every time that we are judgmental toward our fellow human beings nowadays, we are intellectualizing. Conversely, whenever we work together with our fellow humans in a social partnership, we are emotionalizing, for in these moments we are dominated by our animalistic drives. Everything we seek in the world, we do in life, Excuse me, let me read that again. Everything we seek in the work we do in life is gradually immersed in the realm of our animalistic drives. Everything we look for in the judgments that we make in life 
is gradually immersed in the realm of our intellectualism. People presently have no awareness of this division in their souls. They do not notice how different they are when they judge their fellow human beings or when they work together with them in society. Eventually, however, intellectual life is self-defeating. It continues to strive well beyond all objectivity and reality. It attributes no actual worth, as such, to earthly relationships. In the realm of intellectual life, it is entirely possible to articulate beautiful laws and moral codes within a society wherein people are still servants and slaves. I have spoken quite often about precisely this. Even now, I can remember a certain report about coal mine workers from mid-nineteenth century England. Among the many horrible things outlined in this report, one was particularly emphasized, that all week long nine-year-old, eleven-year-old, thirteen-year-old children were sent down into the mines before sunrise and not released from work until after sundown. These poor children never saw the sun except on Sunday. They were forced to grow up under the earth's surface in terrible conditions, the details of which I will spare you, for there too are many unbelievable things to tell. But still, people sat in drawing rooms heated by the coals taken out of the earth by these children and discussed charity and brotherly love, discussed the importance of looking beyond race, nation, and class. This is an extreme example of intellectual life. Not once are the doors opened to reality. The individual floats above the rest of humanity. To say that we have a sense of true reality simply means that we know how our every thought is connected with what is happening in the world around us. This is the task of spiritual science, to reawaken this sense of reality in human beings. This is why it is necessary to say publicly the sorts of things I said recently in Basel, that followers of religion have, over the course of centuries, established a monopoly on everything that can be said about soul and spirit. Parenthesis, but in quotes, spirit, was abolished in in 869. So nowadays they only talk about, in quotes, soul, close parenthesis. People who do natural scientific research now are not permitted to look for the spirit in nature. And you must admit, the most perfected example of this particular worldview must be attributed to those extraordinarily clever Jesuits. In any of them, if any of them were to become a natural scientist, his research would contain absolutely no trace of the Spirit. If one then took seriously what this Jesuit had written about nature, one would quite understandably become a materialist in the current spirit of the age. These days we have to differentiate between what is theoretically true and what is actually true. It is theoretically true that the Jesuits are champions of a spiritual worldview. It is actually true that the Jesuits propagate materialism. 
It was theoretically true that Newton, in addition to having a mechanistic way of understanding of the world, also took off his hat when he spoke of God. In quotes. It is actually true that Newton's mechanistic worldview prefigured the materialism of a later age. In the end, it does not matter what one believes theoretically. It matters what exists in the laws of reality. And the intellectual worldview never offers actual laws or proofs of the things it purports. The intellectual worldview leads only to full-fledged Luciferianism. In the end, it luciferizes the world. Opposite this intellectualism, there is also a strong trend toward emotionalism, toward life driven by instinct, by the animalistic side of humanity, as I mentioned earlier. When we are called upon to actually live in day-to-day existence and not merely to make judgments, this instinct-driven life is what actually predominates. You could say, for example, that it is shameful how we treat the coal miners. This is a judgment you could make. But then there are the actions you take involving the mines. In the moment you cut out those coupons for coal, you become a supporter of the mining industry, but you do not notice or think about it. I want to use this as a metaphor for all that we do in life, because this is precisely the sort of thing that happens all the time these days. People think about things on the one hand, and then go about their daily business on the other, without noticing the violent discrepancy that separates what they think from what they do. This state of affairs has come about because people are quite comfortable not taking any opportunities to examine more deeply the true nature of life. Everyone wants to be a, quote, good person, close quote, and to, quote, live a good life, close quote, without really striving to understand life. But it is not possible to live in reality without understanding life. This world war was truly caused by the fact that the former members of the so-called, in quotes, governments of the world, parenthesis, and some are still members of those government structures, close parenthesis, were far removed from life. Some are still quite far removed. They are quite comfortable right where they are. What could demonstrate more clearly the current lack of familiarity with the true nature of life, which was the cause of so much in the last few decades than those memoirs that keep appearing on our newsstands and in our bookstores? Every week someone new publishes memoirs, first someone from one side of the war, then someone from the other side. We can see in these publications just how much truth there is to the old saying, quote, you would not believe with what little understanding the world is ruled, close quote. However, people nowadays do not willingly accept the consequences of such a statement. For example, people nowadays do not want to recognize that you cannot have a true feeling for or knowledge of society unless you first have a true knowledge of the world. It would be possible to study zoology without this complete knowledge of the world because knowledge of the facts and functions of the animal kingdom can be achieved purely through a study of their physical organisms. But 
the defining characteristic of human beings is that they are organized in such a way as to be left open to receive impulses out of a true spiritual knowledge of the world. Therefore it is not possible to have any knowledge of society without having a true knowledge of the world as a foundation. We cannot develop the field of sociology without first knowing that everything human beings are striving for in their inner lives is a product of the entire evolution of earth in its current incarnation. Parenthesis, a description of that evolution can be found in my book title and outline of esoteric science. Close parenthesis. We must furthermore know that everything human beings take up now in society will become a seed for all that is still to occur in the ongoing evolution of the earth. We cannot understand society without understanding the world in its entirety. It is impossible for human beings to initiate programs or ideas or ideals in day-to-day life without first laying a spiritual foundation for their initiatives. For currently all over the world souls have no grasp of the origins of their impulses, initiatives and ideas. This leads to strange things indeed. The outstanding German socialist theorist Karl Kautsky has just written a book called titled The Causes of the World War. In it, he first addresses the question of guilt. On the very first pages of the book, Kautsky writes something quite peculiar about his understanding of the answer to this question. I would like to preface my discussion of this by pointing out that Kautsky belongs to a group of people that have done everything they can in the past few decades to hammer home the party doctrine and party discipline in the proletariat. They have pounded it into people's heads that it is not individual human beings, but rather something more general, like capitalism, that is responsible for what happens in the world. They are the reason you find people all over the place talking not about capitalists, but about capitalism. With doctrines like these, You can certainly stir the pot. You can create political parties. You can make a strong hammer for pounding things into people's heads, such that the party doctrines eventually become committed beliefs. But as soon as it is necessary for you to start passing judgments in the world, parenthesis, and never mind doing actual work or starting initiatives, close parenthesis, then the whole doctrine suddenly goes out the window. Because now, who is Kautsky going to blame for the war? He would have to unwrite his whole book if he continued his old litanies against that elusive enemy, capitalism. So what does he do? He writes the following, which is very strange indeed, on the first page of his book. I would like to read just a few words from that book now. Quote, One cannot blame capitalism alone. For capitalism itself is only a theory drawn from the observation of countless individual situations. It is helpful only in so far as it attends to the common thread in these individual occurrences and spins it into a unified theory. But one can fight against the theory only theoretically, not actually. In actuality, we can fight only against individual situations certain institutions and persons that are the bearers of certain societal functions. Close quote. 
The moment the socialist theorist is called upon to pass judgment on society, parenthesis, and again, never mind actually building an initiative in that society, close parenthesis, capitalism suddenly becomes nothing more than an abstraction. Now he is really getting somewhere. But then, when the same Karl Kautsky takes up the threefold nature of reality, capitalism comes marching onto the scene again, dressed in high military fashion, and not as an abstraction, but as something actual. He simply does not notice the difference between an outlook taken from actual observations of day-to-day life and one taken from generally abstract ideas or abstract feelings. Insight. That is the thing we must seek nowadays as a way of defending ourselves from the pitfalls of illusion we encounter when participating in intellectual life. It is for this reason that I have tried to make you aware of a certain perspective on the things that are happening in the world at present. Tomorrow and the next day I will continue to build on what I have said today. The end of Lecture 1